You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Morning, church. It was during worship. I was just feeling this overwhelming sense that I need to repeat that God is good. He really is good. God is good. You need to hear that. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about what God is like, we talk about him like he's made up of all these parts. And so we think of an attribute of God as his goodness. And so we're like, he's good, but he's also these other things. It's just a part of who he is. But we got that all wrong. God is good. He is the essence of goodness. The only reason we have a definition of good is because God exists. He is good. Just like he is love, the only reason we can even begin to grapple with the, the realities of love in this universe is because God is love. God is holy. He's holy other. He's completely set apart. So I just challenge you. One thing I've, I've kind of been into the last six months um, is when I'm, I don't know, feeling overwhelmed or feeling stressed, I just stop and I say, God, you're good. God, you're good. I say that, and what happens when I repeat that is eventually I just start to laugh or I smile because he's so good, and it makes all these things in my life kind of fizzle away. So I challenge you, um, when you're feeling ticked off at life or stressed out, just stop and say, God, you're good. God, you're good. God, you're good. And literally, even during worship, as I was, do, as I was saying that to the Lord in the essence of what, how we were worshiping, it's like a smile just comes on my face. It's, it's uh, so refreshing for your soul to remind yourself of who God is. Um, so all that was extra. You don't have to pay for that, so that's just extra. Um, this morning I want to share a message with you called The Illusion of Control. The Illusion of Control. It's a message of freedom for you. This is really good news. Um, we get, from the moment we're brought into this world, we're, we're tempted with this illusion of control, like things are really up to us. And so I want to I dismantle this illusion of control this morning. Um, when King Jesus came, yes, he was born as a baby, but more than anything, this ushered in the arrival of this king, the, the revelation of this king to the earth. So this is a big deal. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the Christmas story, a portion of the Christmas story where the arrival of King Jesus was a, a direct confrontation or assault to earthly kings. And there's, there's a, a few different kings in the Christmas story, and they respond differently to the arrival of the king. And I want us to, I want us to learn from that this morning, um, because King Jesus com, coming to earth is kind of threatening to us. Yes, we may, may recognize him as savior, but we need to recognize him as king. And it threatens our sense of control in this world. Um, we, have, we have someone who's stepped into what we thought was our territory. We thought this was our life to rule and to reign and to call the shots. And then King Jesus arrives and we're like, oh, I, I thought I had control, but, but I don't. This is actually his territory. When my mom passed away when I was young, my dad ended up remarrying an amazing woman of God a few years after that. And so that means we had a blended family. And so my dad had four kids. My stepmom had three kids. So we're like the Brady Bunch, all coming under one roof. And my sense of what I thought life was like was threatened then as we had these invaders in our home. We had other siblings now 
you know, threatening my ability to survive. They were taking my food and they were taking my space and they were contending for time with my parents now. And so all of a sudden my territory was completely threatened. It was, it was an, an assault on everything that I thought my life was supposed to be. And we'll realize that in life that we get into these situations and these this kind of natural desire of ours to cling to control or cling, cling to control and think that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we control things is quickly revealed. And I'm so thankful for the experience that I had. You know, I was the, uh, the middle child and um, I tried to get along, but when you try to get along, you're punished by being shuffled around the house. So I was always in a different room from month to month. Whoever was not getting along, they'd put me in the room then and say, okay, well, <laughs> We'll, we'll put Drew with him since Drew won't, won't uh, get into as much trouble with him. Um, it was just a complete offense to my way of life. And to a way greater level, when, when King Jesus arrived, it's an assault on, on our territory, on what we thought was our territory and our sense of control. So I want us to uh, take a look at Matthew chapter 2. If you have your, your Bibles this morning, you can open up to Matthew chapter 2. I want us to take a look at these two different kings, types of kings in this, this part of the Christmas story. First, we're going to take a look at King Herod. King Herod was king over the region of Judea in the Roman Empire. And so there was you know, the, the famous Augustus Caesar who ruled over the empire of Rome. And King Herod ruled over this region for the emperor. And so there's a lot of power here in King Herod in terms of earthly, just earthly dynamics. A lot of power resides in King Herod who ruled during the birth of Jesus. Maybe you didn't know that King Herod was actually a third generation Jew. It was his grandfather that converted to Judaism. Most people believe that he converted to Judaism for political reasons to kind of win the hearts of the Jews and their region. And so King Herod kind of continued on that family tradition he, he aspired to a form of Judaism that, that appeased the people, but it was no more than that. It wasn't a true Jewishness of his heart. It was a Judaism in posturing outwardly. King Herod was known for his prominent public building projects, most notably um, Herod's temple. I mean, it's considered one of the, the wonders of the ancient world. It's, it's, it's magnificent in beauty, um, and he did that to win over the hearts of the people, like to, to demonstrate to them, hey, I'm really one of you. I'm really, I'm really a follower of Yahweh. See, believe me. But King Herod is known for being incessantly paranoid. The last number of decades of his, of his life, his paranoia of you know, clinging for control for the throne drove him to madness, drove him to insanity, Everyone around every corner was out to get his, his throne because he was clinging for control. So there's, there's King Herod, this kind of picture of us at our worst, really. really. I mean, we're just clinging for control in every form and fashion. And on the other, on, on the other side of the spectrum here in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see this picture of these kings of the east, these wise men or, or some consider magi. I think it's beautiful that we actually don't know too much about them, whether they're kings or sages, or magis, we don't know. But they came, and they left their, 
their affluence and their titles and their positions, and they came, and we're going to read it literally in Matthew chapter 2, it says they fell down and they worshiped Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. Scholars don't know if there were two of them or 12 of them. Most people default to three because there's three gifts that we're going to read here in Matthew chapter 2. But they are a challenge to us. These non-Jewish kings of the East who came and they recognized the arrival of the king. It's just a revelation of what they had already been beginning to understand. That they truly don't rule and reign like they thought. That there's one who's greater than them. And he's not just a king like the king of the Jews. He's the king of all kings. And so we're going to be challenged by these kings of the East this morning. Let's, let's pray and then we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 2. What I'm really feeling in my heart, that this good news of surrender and trust is going to be life-giving and freeing for individuals this morning. And I pray that your word would pierce our hearts. Like the goodness of God would pierce through our circumstances and our situations our anxiety and our worry, our paranoia about what people think about us, would it pierce through all of that and it would set our hearts free to finally lay it all down before you, to lay down our crowns before you, to trust you, King Jesus. Lord, I pray that as individuals, we'd come face to face with you, that we truly would be assaulted by the arrival of King Jesus, and we'd finally admit and submit to what we've known all along, that we don't really have control. In your mighty name, King Jesus, amen. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We, don't, we really don't know too much about these, these wise men. They're just kind of like these anonymous. Some scholars think they were from the Arabian Peninsula, like you know, modern day Yemen, Oman. Um, but we don't know. It's all kind of just speculation. It's so beautiful. And they came. They recognized something was happening in Judea. And so that they come. They leave it all. They come. They begin to acquire or um, inquire in Jerusalem as to what in the world is going on. And they're non-Jews. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. So like back to back, you have the stark contrast. These ones who came to worship him, the very next verse, King Herod, who's troubled. Like he's just catapulted directly into paranoia again. And all of Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this is what the, the leaders, the, the scribes, the, the rabbis, they're, they're telling King Herod. This is what scripture says, that the Messiah is gonna come from Bethlehem. Then Herod summoned the wise men to so these kings of the east secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's starting to put together this plan. Okay, we know he's going to be in this town, and now we'll put together a timeline. When, when did you hear, or when did you um, begin to follow this star? 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're just on an adventure, like, like just truly a faith adventure, like this, this longing in their hearts for something beyond themselves, that this God, creator God really does exist. He's out there and they're, they're searching for him. They're seeking for him. They're seekers. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They fell down. Kings, royalty, affluent, rich, they come down, they, they worship a baby. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So God gave them discernment to not fall for the, the trap of King Herod to um, to snuff out this king. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I, call, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. The crazy like divide or chasm between these different kings. King Herod and his incessant paranoia and just constantly troubled heart. And like the peaceable, humble spirit of these wise kings of the east that come and lay it all down before King Jesus. So I want us to, I want us to take a closer look at this, at these different kings. King Herod, let's first look at that. King Herod clung to control. He did. He clung to control. He would never admit that it's an illusion of control. Instead, he tried to cling for control, but it's always like sand in his hands. And he clung to control by a form of godliness that denies the power. You see, King Herod was comfortable with a form of religion as long as it didn't require anything of his life. So, yes, Judaism was part of his family heritage. It suited him well for political reasons. So he said, of course, I'll claim Judaism. I'll claim faith in Yahweh. It suits my purposes. It's, it suits my, my, my rule and my reign as king. But de it denies any sort of power in terms of transformation of his life, in terms of outward fruit for the benefit of those around him. It's a form of godliness that denies the power. And this is running rampant right now in our generation. Most every generation has struggled to move beyond just outward austerities or outward uh, religious facades and press into a godliness with power, which is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform a life from the inside out. The most recent numbers I could find said that in the United States, 
only 7.1% of people claim to be either atheist or agnostic. It means the other almost 93% of people claim to be spiritual in some form or fashion. But we know still a minority of people actually proclaim and profess Jesus as king, as like laid down lovers, like their lives devoted fully to him from day to day, not just on Sunday mornings. So there's this huge disconnect. And so oftentimes we, we cling to control by fooling ourselves with godliness that denies the power. Second, Herod clung to control by, by posturing. What I mean by posturing is, is, is protecting our reputation, protecting, trying to con- be the controller of what people think about us and people's opinions of us. And King Herod loved this. That's why he was all about his, his big public works that were very pronounced and that were very prominent so that people would respect and acclaim him and, and affirm him. But you take one look into, into King Herod's secret life and it's all revealed that it was all just, it's all just a game. It's all just theatrics. It's hypocrisy. And so he clung to control by playing this game of posturing and theatrics and in trying to protect his reputation. And when all that failed, when his religion failed him, when his reputation was truly revealed, his character was revealed, thirdly, he, cl- he clung to control by just destroying others. Finally, he just took it into his own hands and he'd just tear down the people around us, or around him. It was said of King Herod that during the whole latter part of his life, the dread of arrival to the throne had haunted him. This is the last 20 years of his life or so. And he sacrificed thousands, literally. He killed thousands of people, all out of paranoia, for retaining the throne. And among them, those nearest and dearest to him, to lay that ghost. In the, the final weeks leading up to his death, he actually killed his very own son, Prince Antipater. Because it was, rumors were getting out that, that this prince was, wanted to overthrow King Herod. So he even killed his own son because of this madness that had overcome him of desiring to cling to control. And so how often, you know, when we see life ra- uh, unraveling around us and we feel like we're losing control, isn't it then that we usually lash out on the people around us? And oftentimes the people that are closest to us. The people that we say we love the most, those are the ones we, we turn against. We destroy others to try to cling to control. So that's King Herod. Now let's take a look at, at these wise kings of the East. They give us a beautiful, a beautiful um, example of how to lay down our lives to King Jesus, to accept truth when we're confronted with the arrival of this king and finally just surrender ourselves to him because they surrendered control by, by the surrendering of their titles. I said it earlier, but I think it's so beautiful that these kings of the East, so, so little is known about who they really are because they came, not because anybody was expecting them to come, but because they are, their hearts longed to encounter this king of all kings, this king who really ruled over them. And so they were willing to abandon their titles, come essentially anonymous to come and worship him. So I don't know what it is that you 
cling to for your identity, if it's your role as, as a father or a mother or husband or wife or, or your multiple degrees or your position in this world in the marketplace as, as employer or employee. But God is this morning giving, giving us an invitation to surrender all that to, before him, to surrender our titles before him. Secondly, the wise men surrender control by the surrendering of their riches. That's right, I went there. And the reason I went there is because scripture goes there. These kings, they, they surrendered their riches. They were, they were obviously affluent, they were rulers. And they saw it as the natural outflow of their worship to also surrender their riches. I know it's so uncomfortable for, for us to talk about money in worship because we're like, well, that's, that's mine. That's, I've, I worked hard for that. Like, I saved that up and that's mine. But that's the nature of coming face to face with King Jesus is it's all his anyways. And so it's not so much that he needs your riches and King Jesus here in the story, he didn't need the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh. But King Jesus wants your heart. And time and time again, we lay down our riches before King Jesus and we say, it's, it's yours, it's been yours all along. Like you've, you've entrusted it to me to steward, but it's yours, King Jesus. And third, the wise men surrender control by the surrendering of people's opinions. I just love how they, they hear this through a dream that King Herod had this plot to actually kill the Messiah. And they're like, okay, well, we don't care what King Herod thinks anyway, so we're going to go this other way. And they went an alternative way home. They completely... Um, shed any desire to bow to people's opinions. I so want that in my life. How often do we get, we get trapped caring what people think about us? When we realize we can't control what other people think about us. It's so freeing. So we can surrender this control of people's opinions the control that that has over us. What an inspiring example these wise kings of the East give us. And so this, this king's arrival 2,000 years ago, King Jesus, his arrival threatens our illusion of control. And this morning, I, I've been praying that, that you would have that sort of um, confrontation with King Jesus yourself, that you'd be willing to finally admit what's real, that's what's true. That control is an illusion. You should say that. Control is an illusion. Okay, great, yes. <laughs> the wise men, they recognized this and they allowed their lives to be disrupted by the arrival of the king. They were willing to admit that they really didn't have control. So they left what they knew to seek out this one who is greater than them. And they would learn to worship one greater than them. Which is so good for us to admit that. He's king. He is king. So I use that word very carefully. Control is just an illusion. This, this sense that anything is really up to us. You don't have control over others. You don't have control over the weather. You don't have control over the economy. 
You don't have control over how people interpret your actions. But yet all of those things are tied to this temptation to fall into anxiety and worry. And anxiety and worry oftentimes leads us to make bad decisions by taking things into our own hands. We, we tear down so many things around us. So it's a lie. Control is a lie. There is only one type of control that's godly. And I want to make that clear. There's one type of, of control that the word of God exalts as actually fruit of the spirit. And it's self-control. So you peruse, I mean, you, you scan the entire universe your entire life, all of your circumstances, all of your situations. And the word of God actually becomes a mirror which points it back to yourself and you realize, oh wow, the only thing I have control over is myself. Self-control is God-honoring. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in your life is when you exalt what you can take ownership of. You cannot control outward circumstances, but we can and we should control how we respond to circumstances. Well, words come out of our mouths. We can't control what thoughts come into our minds, but we can control what we do with the thoughts that come into our minds and what we allow to me- ourselves to meditate on. And so the godly life of surrender and trusting him is taking control of those things for ourselves. What goes on in here, and I find that that happens at the feet of Jesus when I surrender myself to King Jesus. So the king's arrival is an invitation to surrender. It's such a beautiful invitation. This is good news. It's not bad news. When we talk about surrender, I I speak about it confidently. I speak about it with joy in my heart because this is invitation to the goodness that God has for you, to, to joy, to freedom. It's found in surrender. Take note of what I said earlier. I said the arrival of the king is a threat to the illusion of control. But the arrival of the king is not a threat to you personally. King Jesus came because he comes to bring life and life abundantly. And so it's actually an opportunity for us to come to grips with these realities that I think deep down we know. These spirals that we find ourselves that lead us downwardly um, in, in this rut of anxiety and worry and and bad choices. If we had humble ourselves and admit, we'd realize, okay, I really don't have control of any of this. And I can can finally come to an end of myself and begin to trust one who does have control, who's King Jesus. But I get it. The problem is, can we trust him? Can we move past trusting in ourselves and actually surrender to him? Later in in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says it like this. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's that paradox that we find coming to the surface when we come confronted, like when we're confronted by King Jesus. It's like we want to hang on to our life, but when we do that, we actually lose it. It's actually our own demise. It's our own destruction. But when we admit it and we we actually lay down our lives, we take up our cross, we follow him, we find life and life abundant. And that's why I confidently speak about this. 
This is an invitation. It's, it's a good invitation. He truly is good and he can be trusted. He truly is good and he can be trusted. I was reminded of the great hero, hero of the faith, David Brainerd, pioneer missionary to the Native Americans. He said, oh, that I would give up myself to God so as never more to attempt to be my own or to have any will or affections that are not perfectly conformed to him. That was his greatest desire, to live a more surrendered life every single day because he found in that place of surrender, in that place of trust, he was most fully alive. He was most free. He was most joy-filled. It was in that place of full abandonment to the things of God. David, David Brainerd lived a, lived a full life. He didn't live a long life. He only lived to the age of 29. But yet here we are, 300 years later, we're still talking about him because he lived a full life. Laid down for the things of God. He can be trusted. Do you believe that this morning? He can be trusted. I was recently reminded of a testimony Testimony of, of an individual who's healed of Lyme's disease after 38 years. Our paths crossed with this individual as we were in a community out in, north, out in the northwest, out in the Seattle area. And in that community, we were praying for this lady's healing. This is the, the pastor's wife, and we were, we were praying that she would be able to receive this healing of, of Lyme's disease. She had been suffering for so many years at that time, more than two decades. And it was getting so bad, it was, it was becoming such a crippling disease for us that she was actually falling into seizures multiple times a week. They were increasing in frequency. I mean, it just was be beginning to be a, a really dire situation. She continued to trust the Lord. She continued to do what she could do to, to tie in with community and with, surround herself with people that remind her of truth and and then to remind herself, herself of, of those, those, inner, those inalterable truths, the, the things of God that Scripture reminds her of. She tells herself that God is good, that he is her healer. 2019, fast forward several, several years, she was at a meeting. She had been prayed for hundreds if not thousands of times for healing, still standing on that promise that God is her healer. This friend and leader walked up to her and said, you know, Lyme's disease is no big deal for God. And he said, be healed. To this day, we have no idea why, but in that moment, the power of God rushed through her body. She knew something had shifted. And Lyme's disease broke off of her. She, she testified about walking out of that gathering, even though the music had stopped, they were the last ones out of the building. She heard the sound of people singing. She believes it was the, the sound of heaven, the sound of uh, singing angels in heaven. But now, a year and a half later, she's been free of Lyme's disease, completely set free. I praise God that she endured through trials and difficulties, through circumstances that she could not control, and chose to ground herself in the goodness of God. She constantly surrendered herself. She responded to that invitation to surrender day after day. And it was a daily choice. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We sang that song 
We bow down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus, and we're gonna, we're gonna take time this morning to get on our knees and surrender to King Jesus. I, I was reminded of a, a testimony within my own family that I just wanted to close with. I got to see my, um, my in-laws over Thanksgiving. Uh, it was amazing to be able to, we don't get to see them all too often. They live up in North Dakota, and... Um, Great to be able to spend time with them. I was just reminded of a testimony in their life. It was 2009. Um, my father-in-law is a retired pastor now. Actually served as a youth pastor for more than 30 years. That's right. You heard me right. He was a youth pastor for more than 30 years. He was a youth pastor in the same church for 29 years. And he finally just retired in his 60s. Now, ministering to thousands of students. Every week would gather a couple hundred youth uh, in his gatherings and um, usher them into the presence of God. Such an amazing testimony. But in 2009, it was the week of his, of his uh, youngest daughter's wedding. So he was going to have the honor of walking her down the aisle and officiating the wedding. The week of her wedding, such an exciting time for a family. They had an awesome house right on the river, right on the Red River. And that year, uh, meteorologists were predicting that it was going to be a really difficult flood, that, that this spring it was going to be a record-setting flood. And so the timing of it lined up that it was going to be the week of her wedding. So there he was. He was outside. He was starting to prepare uh, their property to be able to get sandbags up, sandbags up all around their house because their neighborhood was going to be covered with water. You know, in, in North Dakota, it's, um, there's snow on the ground 12 months out of the year. I don't know if you knew that, so... No, but it was spring and there was still snow on the ground. So he, he got out to their yard and he, pulled, or he started to get the snowblower ready. He pulled a couple times on the cord for the snowblower. And when he did that, he felt this excruciating pain in his chest. So he was confident he was having, uh, having a heart attack and he got down on his knees and was just paralyzed by the pain. His, his wife saw him and rushed out to him and they rushed him to the hospital they found out that, in fact, he was not having a heart attack. Instead, he had a dissected aorta. The major artery, the largest artery in your entire body was being torn in two. And so he's bleeding to death. So they rushed him to emergency surgery. People began to pray that God would touch his body, that he would see him through. So just think of all these things colliding, like in your life, like these, you got your, your daughter's wedding, you got your house being surrounded by the floodwaters, and there you are on your potential deathbed being rushed into emergency surgery. But he, he lived in such a way, his character and his integrity, that in those moments, you can imagine how he responded. He responded with the grace of God to just trust the Lord. People rallied around him. More than 150 volunteers flooded to his home, sandbagged his home. People stayed 24 hours a day, manned some pumps and, and manned the, the dike around their home. Their home was fine. When he finally came out of surgery, he had assumed he had missed the wedding, but his daughter was there at his bedside and said, Dad, no, we wouldn't have gone on without you. Because of the, the flood in the city, in uh, his surgery, they did a, a different sort of ceremony, a smaller ceremony, and he was still able to be there, even in his wheelchair. He walked her down the aisle, you know, quote unquote, walked her down the aisle in a wheelchair. 
and led, led the ceremony. But there's a picture hanging up in their, in their living room of, of us gathered around Cal in his wheelchair. And I just feel like it's such a testimony because there's such a, a huge smile on his face, resting in the joy of the Lord, completely surrendered, you know, not freaking out about all these circumstances that he can't control, resting in the goodness of God. So it's possible, it's possible to trust God. Doesn't mean everything's gonna go perfectly in your life. Everything's gonna be handed to you. But there is an abundant life hidden within all of that chaos that's found in this, this life laid down before King Jesus. So I wanna just respond to the Lord. If you stand in this place, his arrival 2,000 years ago is an invitation to surrender. That's not a one time surrender, it's a daily surrender. It's a constant surrender for us to lay down all the things that King Herod clung to, to lay down all the things that the kings of the East laid down at the feet of Jesus. It's an invitation for us to lay all that down before Jesus. And there's freedom in that place. There's joy. And I, I pray that you respond to the Lord this morning. So if you all close your eyes and bow your heads in this place. Inevitably, I believe there's anxiety in this room, that there's difficult circumstances that individuals are facing, that there's worry that keeps people up at night. I'm speaking good news to you. It's not easy answers for all your circumstances, but it's an internal peace and joy and freedom gifted by King Jesus when you surrender it all to him. So if you're physically able, would you find a place to kneel before the Lord? The worship team is gonna sing this song that we bow down, we lay our crowns and it would just be kind of silly for us to not actually do that. So, <laughs> so King Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you. You are King, King of all Kings. And we vocally, like we verbally admit that what we cling to is simply an illusion it's an illusion of control. We don't have control anyways. So we surrender it all before you. Our crowns, our titles, our positions, our riches, our con contriving of people's opinions of us, our reputation, we lay it all down before you, King Jesus. And I believe this morning, people are gonna experience freedom and joy and peace like they never have before at the feet of Jesus. I pray that, Lord, this morning in your name. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.